today I'm joined by two great gentlemen, John and David. Good, great to be here. We're speaking on racism and the course of this dialogue has changed a lot in the last few years. And I think that if you have a discussion now or a month ago or a year ago, each of those conversations will be entirely different from the other. And so that's why I do revisit this particular topic on a regular basis, but um, never more, I think, informed than today's ones, because I'm very, very proud and happy to, to be speaking to, to these well-informed, educated men whose opinions I highly regard. So I'm going to ask John to start us off, if that's okay, with just like an, an introduction on your thoughts on, on this topic and being here on this particular day in this time, which is May 2022. Well, I would say it's a timely discussion. It's ongoing. There are a couple of events of particular note. Uh, on a top view, the resistance to the discussion is one of the reasons why things like mass shootings persist. I think there are a lot of people who, uh, who are resistant to the discussion, and I think they're resistant to the discussion because they're concerned about what they may find. Yeah, I think so too. That's brilliant. Thank you. And, and David, um, what are your opening thoughts on this? Oh, good morning. Um, uh, well, this is a complicated thing for me. I, uh, I, I just want to kind of speak to what John was saying. I'm certainly, I certainly feel grateful for your invitation, Rashma, to this conversation. Um, I was looking at um, some words that are only a year old from the, the uh, writer Teju Cole, um, who's been talking a great deal about um, the white savior industrial complex and, and getting into this issue of fragility, white fragility. Um, on one hand, um, pardon me, uh, this idea of kind of, this, this idea that someone like me, a white male, would come into this conversation with a kind of savior complex versus the idea of, of fragility, which as John points out, is actually part of the problem and that it, it stops the dialogue from going forward. Um, so I feel both those things at the same time. And, um, and it seems that the only way I can be part of the solution, even in a small way, is to be in conversations like this one. Um, I'm not sure. Well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I do. I definitely feel the importance of a conversation like this one, while at the same time feeling my own discomfort. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that aspect of your perspective. It is tough. And just for anyone who who, who might not understand, can can you sort of define in your own words what white fragility is? Um, I think it has a lot to do with, with simply what John was kind of alluding to, a kind of uneasiness to talk about the most central problem in, in, our, in society, which is racism. A kind of fear of doing so, as John said, a fear of finding out the truth. Um, I think people like to guard their reputations and not say the wrong thing. Um, there's a fear of one putting one's foot in their mouth. Um, there's a fear of, um, and this actually is really kind of an important thing I'm sure we'll get into, there's a fear of, in a sense, being transformed into a racist um, by saying the wrong thing, which I think is quite at the root of, of criticism of what is inaccurately dubbed critical race theory. Um, I'm a high school teacher by training, and um, you know that kind of training isn't exactly happening in high schools. But what is happening is a kind of a kind of fear again that, on the part of parents in many cases, that their their white children will be taught that they're racist. So I think there's this, this fear of that um, that's, that's everywhere in white culture. And it, um, it really complicates um, the responsibility of having civil conversations about a problem that seems to have, have gone unsolved for 400 years now. John, would you like to respond to David directly on that, please? Um, well, I, um, I do agree with David. He hit a lot of the points with regards to white fragility and about this resistance to discussion, I'm, I'm going to expand upon that by saying that a lot of this is predicated and it's built upon privilege and people misunderstand where that privilege comes from. It, it, it most certainly is rooted in whiteness, but it's also rooted in how whiteness is perpetuated from generation to generation, and that's through power. This country is the most powerful country that has ever existed. And to live in a, in a, a generation in a time where you are now being asked to not only examine that privilege, but ultimately forfeit, you're talking about a group of people who simply will look at that and say, you know what, I kind of like being in charge. I like the privilege that's conferred upon me. I like the, the, the sort of barriers that it creates around my, my person in terms of my safety and my rights. 
um, and to say, well, now I have to confer all of that same stuff on somebody else. Well, I mean, that's, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's an impossible ask, but you can see where there might be resistance to that, where now you're saying, okay, I now have to interrogate this thing, except that while maybe I specifically am not racist, I benefit from a, from racist structures. And I now am going to take, take part in tearing down structures that were essentially given to me by my forebears. I think we have to understand that element of it before we start talking about resistance to discussion. Okay, yeah. And that, that is critical race theory, that part there about the institutional structures <clears throat> of race. And that's an important and complex thing. Yes. The only other thing I would add to um, what John is saying about America and power and whiteness and history is that, I mean, the two great documents of this for this country are the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And the Declaration of Independence is quite explicit in offering, finger quotes, everyone rights, liberty, democracy, opportunity and equality. But even from the beginning, it wasn't for everyone. We can see this quite simply in, well, in slavery, of course, and also in who got to vote. Um, and it's only in fairly recently that the American experiment has become this idea to kind of uh, get everyone to enjoy these ideals, get everyone to enjoy these ideals. But the US has never achieved that. Um, and um, we happen to be in a time right now where we're we're getting we're getting a little closer closer. We happen to be in a kind of progressive era where we feel like we're we're doing just that, making progress. Um, so it's an interesting moment, but it does seem in this time, uh, and maybe this is a, a pattern historically, that the resistance to this progress is fierce, um, and, it, and it's really coming out of the Trump era, um, I believe. Um, not that it hasn't hasn't always been here. But it is really true that, that, that many of these things have always been kind of in the paperwork of the country, but it's, it's never been fully realized, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. Thank you. Okay, so you started there with saying that that right there is, is critical race theory. And okay, yes, I agree with you. And um, I'm not sure if John will or won't. I'll come, come to you in a moment, John. But um, I was looking at it from the perspective of, um, any history that's taught. Um, so um, I actually got this idea from you, John, in our last conversation that history that's that's taught generally has to be taught from a perspective that's a little bit broader in scope. And, and that is, in a sense, critical race theory. Just maybe you could redefine that for me more accurately. Well, I, what I was saying is that, uh, and I, you know, I, I'm drawing from people like, you know, Hannah Jones and, and you know, um, uh, who, who's, you know, who was part of the 1619 project. And my understanding of it is that, you know, we essentially, the way I boil it down is that we've been really soft peddling a lot of history in this country. And what, what the 1619 project was designed to do was designed to help Americans reckon with and confront the historical racism, structurally, socially, individually, um, you know that has that has endured since the founding of this country this is this the idea that this is not who we are is a false idea we've always been this right now at various times we struggled against it and we struggled mightily against it but at various times we've also lost dismally to it and so what i say um critical race theory what i mean is we have to start critically talking about and analyzing these racist structures in the context of history. It's not a propaganda. It's not an erasure of the existing history. You're taking something that has been left out. For example, there are, there are many textbooks, I think in Arizona and in Texas, and I think Alabama that say that, that the, the, the slaves that were brought here were workers. Right. They refer to them as workers. Well, migrants. That, that language, yeah, migrants, that language in and of itself is, is, is it erases the reality, which is people were forcibly brought here against their will and enslaved. So critical race theory kind of does away with that and says, hey, look, this is what happened. Let's talk about it. And I think that the, the, that the fear is that people are gonna see some of themselves in, in, in that, those teachings. Like, wow, I actually realized that I don't really like this. I don't really like that person. I now have to interrogate why I react so negatively or so adversely to this person, that person on television or whatever. You know, whereas 
from my view, that's exactly how you deal with racism is you take your feelings and go, you know what? I realize that I have these reactions to people and I don't really know why. So let me interrogate that. But what's happening is legislatively is that people are being deprived of that opportunity to confront, to confront racism. And some of, and many people are completely happy with that, probably at least half the country at this point. So that's my sort of view of critical race theory. That's what I believe it to be. Okay, yeah, brilliant, thank you. Um, and that's also helped me better understand what David said now. So I'm glad that uh, we did it that way around. So what, you're, what you were saying, I think, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, David, is that part of that benefit is, is the way that, that, that people are taught at school. Part of it is the education system. So um, having to, to scrutinize yourself or examine where your ideas are coming from, that the ones that are confronting and uncomfortable, one would have to look at how education is, is done, basically. And that is critical race theory as well, which is, I think, what you were saying. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think so. I think that what you're saying, what you're kind of recapping is even a little more sophisticated than what I was trying to say. I do think that there's a, um, I think that one of the things that I'm experiencing, for instance, I was watching a popular news show here, mainstream news show here the other night, and there was, um, it's, it's Brooks and Capehart on PBS, and, and, they were, and one of them was talking about this idea that people are always critical of, people are upset, this 50% that John mentions are up in arms about critical race theory being taught in high school classrooms, for instance. And one of the points that got made was, well, it's not critical race theory. Critical race theory, as I mentioned in the, at the onset, is a very sophisticated thing that's really being taught in law schools, for instance. Um, and I think what's complicated for me about that is that we need to be thinking about what this 50% um, is referring to when they say critical race theory, as opposed to what critical race theory um, is technically and actually and specifically. Um, and this is what I was trying to say, which is a simpler message, that, that they're using that rhetoric politically and, and they have no, they, they, they're not concerned about the accuracy of it. What they're concerned about um, is their children being called out as racist. And, um, and so that, that's all I mean to say is that, and it, it, it raises the great problem that there's no forum right now um, for all sides to come together in conciliatory ways to have a conversation that could lead to peace building. Um, and I, so I think that's what I'm getting at. And uh, it's, 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 it's incredibly complicated and I, I certainly don't have any, any solutions, but um, that's what I was saying, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. And so yeah. do you think that you can define what that quote unquote 50% might be thinking and the rhetoric that they're using around that, what they think critical race theory is exactly? Is it like, a, is it a taught subject? Do you know what I mean? They might think it's- No, like it's not, it's, it's not, um, I may need John's help on this, but I, I think that it's a, it's a couple of things at once. Um, it's not a taught subject. It's not a taught subject, it, it, like for instance, in high school, it's a, it, it certainly is a, a subject, a, a formal subject in higher education. Um, um, and it's certainly, um, there's a lot, but what I think it, it is, is this, is that, you know, there are many teachers who think of, of teaching secondary school, you know, as social justice. Um, and as such, they're going to be, they're going to be talking about what I was speaking to earlier about kind of the promises of the Declaration of Independence, the preamble that, that have really never been fully realized and were, were never designed to serve as many people as they need to today. So I think that that's a basis for social justice work for high school teachers, for instance. Um, that's not critical race theory, what I'm talking about, like identifying, uh, you know, you know, uh, slavery as slavery, you know, is, you know, is not critical race theory necessarily. It's that that we, we would see as is teaching history. Um, so, I, you know, um, so I guess I'm not saying this very well, but what I'm trying to say is, is that if I were to critical race theory, you know, as a formal thing, doesn't isn't happening necessarily in high schools. Whereas um, difficult conversations about racism are um, as um, as a facet, as an important facet of the history of this country. And right. so I think that, and so all I'm trying to say is, is that this rhetoric is being this idea of critical race theory is being appropriated by people, knowingly and less knowingly, to um, to uh, to basically shape government. Exactly. Okay. And what, what grade do you teach, may I ask? 
Um, over my career, I've taught you know uh, every you know sixth grade through twelfth grade, and um, so it's it's a many kids. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. So so this we can I think we can take your your opinions and and uh, most of your statements as as accurate in that case. So brilliant. Maybe. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. So um, John, is there anywhere you'd like to take this? Is there anything in particular that you wanted to speak on? Well, in, well, in terms of the perception of so the, 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 the right in this country, they're, they're particularly adept at taking narratives and twisting them to their own benefit. I mean, everybody is, but the, way, the, the direction that they often take them is to the most base level of human thinking and operation. They appeal to, um, they appeal to essentially to hate. And the reason why I say that is because, and I'm, I'm, gonna, put, I'm gonna put two terms in here. Number one is false flag. And uh, number two is, um, is dog whistle, okay? And dog whistling is you say something with the understanding that the people who agree with you understand what you're actually saying. So it's not, so, so if you say critical race theory, what everybody who you want to understand and hear what you're saying, they hear teaching our kids to hate themselves, right? And then you have false flag, which is where you do something and then you blame somebody else for doing that thing and say that it was their fault, right? So, and there's a lot of that. And, and honestly, it, I think it would be really hard for me to get into a specific example, but those two things often work hand in hand. And so from a, from a perspective in that it's being politicized is a lot of people are politicizing the issue of of critical race theory because, oh, we're, you're teaching our children to hate themselves. No we're teaching your children the truth about what actually happened so that they in future generations can properly reconcile themselves with it, right? Because at this point, what you're doing is you're just kicking the can. And these crimes, they're ongoing, right? So as you shield your children from the truth of what's happened and happening, they are continuing to accumulate these really egregious crimes on their consciences. They're gonna grow up and they're gonna be 50 or 60 or 80 and they're going to be faced with implacable protests, implacable opponents to, to their way of life, wealth disp um, disparity, and they're going to say, why are these people angry? And then they're going to start to ask the question. And they're going to say, holy crap, I, I've had 50 years to address this, and I didn't. And these people are rightfully angry. Their neighborhoods are over-policed. Their carceral rate of their, of their children and their people are two and a half times that of anybody else minimum. They have, you know, no basic services where they live, you know, and their and their encounters with police are almost as likely to be deadly as not. And I could have done something about this. I could have examined my privilege, but I didn't have access to the truth, right? So, and the truth is that these congressmen and these other legislators, they're actually doing their own constituents a disservice in order to further their own power. They're not interested in the truth or not truth. They're interested in telling their people whatever they want to hear to maintain their coffers and to maintain their lifestyles. Okay, yeah. And you're, you're, you're agreeing, David. Have you got anything to add to that? No, um, I, I just agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. That's um, uh, quite an interesting um, insight to to, to American politics, and I, and I imagine in, in some cases global politics and, um, and power play. And, and what if, you know, there are people who are not, are still, are currently not able to access the truth, but could more likely handle it than other people. So you're saying, okay, it's up to you to access that truth. So we know that, uh, okay, right now we have, we still have the, the mainstream media, which a lot of people still consume and they watch TV and there might not be so much on the internet. I know many people that are still like that. And then there are other people who get most of their news source from from the internet, and of course, um, even within that, there are there's a lot of mess. You know, it's, it's social media a lot of the time, so it's going to be whoever's powerful enough. You know, we, we're talking about obviously algorithms and what's being put in front of us and, and all the rest of it. So, if there is somebody right now that is very likely to be able to handle these truths but doesn't have access to it and then they're thinking this isn't going on because they just haven't seen it they don't know anything about these neighborhoods or people that are being heavily policed and they're maybe they might say something like um um well you know 
why did you commit that crime? Well, if you committed that crime, then you're going to be arrested. And when the police told you to do X, Y, and Z, you didn't do it. So you got tasered or you got shot. I mean, that's what happens. What would you say to someone like that? Can I ask David this first? Is that okay? How do you feel about that question? It's awkward, I know. I think that, um, I mean, I, I, are you asking a question that is basically about all lives matter? Is that, the, is that what you're getting at? Well, I guess I am, yes, but I, I, I hate saying those words, but you're right. Most people probably would be part of that. But in England, people might not identify necessarily as, as that, even though they might be espousing that. But yes, let's talk from that yeah. perspective. Thank you. Um, I th I don't know, I'm not sure if this will be helpful, but I, I do think that like when I'm working with teenagers, one of the things that's very difficult for them to understand is the idea of subjective experience being the one that, that we need to address and think about. Um, that is to say that if I am, if, if someone comes up to me and says, David, you're a racist or David, you're a sexist, and my initial response to them might be, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And, and it's kind of, the, you know, that idea of I have plenty of black friends that you hear people say, or, you know, or I'm not a sexist, I'm happily married, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that one of the challenges we face is that, um, is that when I say that, I kind of negate the problem. It's not, you know, it's not, and this is an incredibly difficult thing for teenagers to understand, you know, that, um, that, that the person who's saying that to me is living a very authentic experience. Um, and this is where the idea of implicit bias, for instance, comes from. It's this idea that I can't always see um, other people's experiences. Um, so I think that what I would say to, to, to answer your, your question kind of broadly um, is that the hard work of, of peace building uh, begins with the honoring of subjective experience. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. John, what do you think? Um, I, it's really funny because I got so engrossed in David's answer that I forgot what I was going to say. Can you kind of rephrase a question for me a little bit just so I can get my, my yeah, mind? Uh, yeah, it was very long-winded. I apologize. And no. so, yeah, so if there is somebody that doesn't necessarily access information about people that are in different situations to them, like an, someone in a neighborhood that's heavily policed, for example, uh, and they almost are in denial that it's happening, or they're blaming the people for their own misfortunes. What would you say to that? Well, um, I would start off by saying, I, I'm, I'm gonna drop a, a book here. Um, and I, and I, I, I almost always tell people to read this book. It's a book called The End of Policing by Alex Vital. And he has some statistics in that book that you just, aren't going to believe. But he, he proceeds from the assertion that, that, that the carceral state is not necessary to maintain order. And based on that, a grave miscarriage of justice has occurred when it comes to the incarceration of Black men. But not just Black men, but we are by far the most disproportionately policed and jailed. So I would say, turn off your computer, turn off your social media, go find this book and read it. Start with that, okay? because the assertion is that 80% of all crimes could be eliminated if we started funding basic services instead of police forces, okay? We already have one of the most militarized um, and largest police forces. Our police forces, the, 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 the police force of Los Angeles County, it has the budget almost of the UK's military, almost, or something crazy like that. I'm, I could be wrong, it may be, all of California, but it's some huge gorilla number, okay? Now, um, when you look at that and then you have a president who has said, I'm going to reform policing, but his first move is to hand $14 billion to police and then say, you can reappropriate your pandemic fund, pandemic relief funds for policing, which is another untold number of billions of dollars, right? We don't even know what that number is exactly, but the estimate is 95% of the pandemic relief funding was spent even before he said that on policing. So what, what, and what you're seeing now is also an inverse relationship between increased police funding and reduction in, in police shootings. There's no reduction, there's increase in police shootings and crime is actually going up. So we know that that's not working except we keep throwing money at it. So the a reason why I mentioned that is because the information in Vital's book supports this. And what I, what I believe ultimately is and, and so to address the issue of all lives matter feeding into this, 
this issue of all lives matter. When we say black lives matter, we are not saying nobody else's life matter. We're saying, we're saying it because you won't. Okay, where were you when Tamir Rice, a 13 year old boy was shot and killed, right? When Alton Sterling was shot and killed, you know, with the cop sitting on his chest, where were you with Michael Brown? When, when did you say all, you didn't say all lives matter when that happened. You said, well, he shouldn't have done that, right? He shouldn't have, he should have raised his hands. He should have laid on the ground. He should have whatever. Tamir Rice wasn't given the opportunity to put his hands up. He was playing and some cop before this car even stopped rolling, rolled out of the car and shot him. He didn't even know what was happening. So the reason why I, I, I take issue with all lives matter is because it's a bad faith assertion, right? You're saying all lives matter, but you didn't prove it when it counted. So that's why we say black lives matter. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. I, I would like to add to that point. I'm sorry. One, one, one small point when it comes to access to information. The reason why I say shut off your computers is because the internet is a place that is now so full of chaff and interference intentionally, okay, that people, they cherry pick these small facts and they, they present them as these sweeping arguments that people become confused. Talk, you know, look at Hannah Jones, read her stuff, read um, Teju Cole, read Alex Vitale, read these people and read, and, and also talk to the, the people who experience this, because you're going to find that there is a common thread in all of their experiences. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think um, when you say things like, yeah, okay, shut, shut off the computers and, and read people's, read books that, that are um, very specific on these topics, if you're really that interested in its genuine interest. But also from a study perspective, I remember David last week, you, you posted um, an article about people's, more people's being interested in studying humanities at a higher level, higher education, and what we could do to address that. And um, I, I wonder if you want to speak a little bit on that, because it was an interesting article. Um, maybe I can get to that. I think that more broadly, when thinking about what we study in school, I'm interested in how people like me, for instance, uh, first learn about this, uh, what we're talking about today. Um, you know, I, for me, my first kind of introduction to um, racism as something that could, could, you know, could be, that I could witness in my own life, very strangely came from the movie Do the Right Thing. Um, Spike Lee's movie from 1989, I watched it as a 20-year-old. As a and I have to be honest, I had no idea about any of this until then. Um, and most people don't realize this, that movie was actually um, inspired by uh, something called the Howard Beach incident. It was, and I don't remember all the names of the people who were involved, but it had to do with a dozen white men chasing down three, three uh, black young men. And one of those young men were trying to escape, running onto a freeway and being hit by a car and killed. Um, and it leads to a race riot um, in the movie itself. And this was my first exposure to any of that, you know? And so when I think about the humanities, or I think about, you know, what I was talking about earlier about what is being called critical race theory in the high school classroom, I simply have large questions about how people are going to, how young people are going to learn about um, racism and race in America. Um, and it's, I, I'm grateful that I was exposed to it and I'm grateful that I was able to grow with it. Um, but I don't think it's, you know, I've, we've already said this, but I don't think it's, I don't think that the subject matter is palatable to, uh, to many Americans. And so I think that, that that's our challenge. In terms of the humanities themselves, I mean, I think that the humanities um, gives us an opportunity to kind of, um, you know, kind of very intentionally um, look at our own humanity, obviously. Um, and so I think that, um, I'm not sure if that, that really addresses your question, Reshma, but uh, does that, does that yes, help? Yes, it does. Yeah, that's a brilliant, brilliant answer. Thank you for that. Um, because, yeah, I, I often think about that myself. Like, um, the a person's first initial exposure to racism, now it's discussed um, so widely, it's almost unavoidable. And this is why a lot of people are getting angry about it. It's like, well, if we stop talking about it, it will go away. Um, yeah. Definitely, that's what how a lot of people feel in the UK. And um, like you say, those people might may well fall under the All Lives Matter banner, but it's also just a case of um, uh, that they, they don't have the exposure to it, that it doesn't impact them. Um, they don't realize that it's privileged, they, that the fact that they're not impacted by it. And they, you know, that does fall under the fragility issue that they're not, um, 
that they're not willing to accept that there's privilege at all, especially if they have experienced any misfortune of their own in their lives, which means they're not really familiar with the concept of privilege in the first place. And which is why I asked about what you thought about studying humanities mm -hmm. uh, generally, because the more people who, who study humanities, the more um, impact will have on the general discourse, because um, it's still a case of a lot of people don't really know how to analyze information they don't realize they're falling prey to um, confirmation bias, which is just standard nowadays. You, you, you have an opinion and you look for stuff, of course, to, to uh, support your opinion on the internet, yeah. which you'll always find. So that's why I do support you, John, in saying just switch off the computer, um, put down your phone and, and really work out what you're trying to do when you access information. Yeah. And, yeah. And, so, and so that's why I really liked your article, David, because it did talk about how we are processing information when we first access it and why we would even want to study it in the first place yeah i might add only one thing you know in addition to this you know this idea of shutting off the internet and social media being in, in ways more of a distraction than a help um just the the, the technology itself the technology you know a technologist nation you know is something that um you know, there are fewer people probably looking forward to writing the great American novel these days than there are people looking forward to becoming hackers and looking forward to, um, you know, so I, I think that our values are shifting um, uh, arguably away from the from the humanities. But we did uh, on, on social media, I did receive some responses from college students who were quite proud to let me know that they were they were STEM and STEAM students who were actually uh, going deep into the humanities. So I think that there's there's good stuff too. Oh, wonderful! I'm really yeah. glad you told me that. Thank you. Yeah. I will revisit yeah. that post to see to see some of that. That's yeah. great. Thank you, John. Do you have anything to say on this before I, I might move on? Uh, no, I think we, in terms of accessing information and such. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I do want to say that I think when people begin to access information, and this is very brief, is um, is this idea that despite despite the, the the dominant culture, white culture being privileged, it does not mean that they also don't benefit. They, in other words, there is still benefit to putting down your privilege. You know, there are a lot of women, particularly black women, who have been doing this work for going on sixty years. Okay, and there had been massive advances in studies and information surrounding surrounding police interventions in the case of mental illness, for example. That affects everyone. Okay, there are instances where where force was used disproportionately against blacks, but against whites as well, where they would benefit from, uh, you know, from you know anti-carceral policies. And that work has been being done for sixty years. There are instances, for example, I'm going to throw this this little tidbit out there. In 2020, the number of robberies, the number of thefts committed by police by dollar amount exceeded the number committed by actual criminals. Okay, that affects, again, disproportionately minorities, but it affects white people too. And that's through what they call civil asset forfeiture. And I'll get into that another time. But the police have the power to pull you over. And if they feel like your assets are being used in the commission of a crime, they can take it. But it's been found that more than 50% of those seizures were unlawful, despite the fact that those properties were not then re, you know, given back to the people they took them from. So that number was about $5 billion by, by number, which is, you can see how, there, how there's a benefit to police reform that doesn't just benefit African-Americans, it benefits everyone, because we're all victims of this heavily militarized and heavily I mean, they have very little accountability and we all benefit from accountability. Mm. Yeah, God, and that's the stuff of movies that I, was, I struggled to accept what you just said. I mean, um, if, is, is there um, a reference for anyone who might ask for one? There is, I, I, I believe Alex Vital re refers to it, but um, I, will, I will tweet out a couple of articles later on. Thank you, amazing. And about it. Yeah. Um, oh. David, um, you said you had prepared a couple of um, particular things you wanted to talk about. Have we already covered them or is there something different that you'd like to bring to the conversation? I think we've mostly covered it, to be honest. Um, there's a question that I, um, 
there's a there's something that I'm formulating that isn't ready yet, but it has to do with the possibility that that an anti-racist position is is the most powerful one. Um, and I think that one of the things that um, I'm trying to figure out, if you're in a place of power, you know, I've I've strived over the past 25 years to be an anti-racist teacher, for instance. Um, is how to have conversations with everyone, um, you know, to make the world a better place. Um, and what I'm trying to understand, and, and this is an open question, and this is about as far as I've gotten with it, is that it's really oftentimes it's the place of the most, it's the most powerful position that, that kind of begins the, the conciliation. You know, the idea of kind of, uh, you know, bringing people, you know, bringing people to the table, acknowledging their point. Um, I think the problem that we have in this age, and it isn't just racism, is that we can't acknowledge each other's points because everything is moral. Um, it's absolutely, you know, just impossible for me to say to someone that I'm, I'm suspecting is bigoted to say, well, I see your point, sit down for a second, let's talk about it. So I think the question I'm, I'm having, and it's rather abstract and rather theoretical, is how does a conversation really take place um, where we can we can move to what Barack Obama very hastily called a post-racial society, you know, within our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a big broad question for any for anyone to take. Yeah, that's that's a a great question, and um, and I'd like it doesn't first and foremost it it sounds ready it's ready. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm wondering if John would just like to respond to that because I bet you can. Well, what I would say is, um, I, I, I will say this, you know, you can't read Angela Davis, Aim Césaire, Franz Fanon, um, Robin D.G. Kelly, um, Toni Morrison, Bell Hooks. Uh, you can't read any of those people. And at the end of reading that dirt, that, that not dirt, that breadth of material, and at the end of it be like, I still hate black people. So what you have, what some people have to do is they have to commit, I mean, is they have to commit themselves, as you pointed out for yourself, you have to commit yourself to an anti-racist path. And there are some great organizations. I have a wonderful friend, her name is um, Marguerite Hill, and she runs an organization called the Muslim Anti-Racism Coalition. And she does anti-racism training. And she actually has a, a weekly class going on right now that if you sign up for at the end of it, you get like a certificate at the end. And the class is absolutely wonderful. I tweet about it all the time. I'll tweet about it again. Um, she actually does facilitations. She travels around the country and does facilitations for organizations and groups. Um, she's very heavily into that. And she was the person, even as I will say, as a as a a black man, she hipped me to the idea of anti of not just being not racist, but being anti-racist, of being affirmatively against racism. Um, so what I would say is from that perspective, I would say, start with that, but also as someone who's not white, I would say that the, the, the onus, the responsibility for making the same, making the decisions that you made for yourself and helping other people to make those decisions for themselves, that is, uh, uh, you know, on and amongst you, you can talk to other white people and say, Hey, look, let's get together and talk about a framework by which we can we can enable this. Let's talk about some good faith moves. Let's talk about why are our legislators legislating body autonomy and legislating voter suppression when they should be legislating more, you know, and why are they legislating CRT when they should be le legislating accountability ability for police? What are some active things that we can do on the local state level that that will tell our tell the people of color in our communities that we actually do get, we do care in good faith because we can't do that we these are these are places that are that the barriers to entry are so high that we would we we prefer to organize amongst ourselves and make sure that the person on the corner is not you know in the in the corner grocery gets enough business from us the the old lady who lives in our neighborhood is being fed and she's getting walk she's getting to go on walks and stuff we we you know we do mutual aid amongst each other I think a similar community approach that needs to be not just a, not affirmative, but aggressive, where white communities say, hey, look, you know, maybe we shouldn't be gentrifying these neighborhoods and maybe we shouldn't be disenfranchising people. Maybe we should make sure that, um, that, that financial services are available and accessible to other communities, that certain communities aren't being redlined, 
certain communities aren't being over-policed. In other words, not just literally, but also structurally put yourself in the fray. That would be my answer. I don't know if that's what the answer we're, we're, we're looking for. Yeah, that's that's a brilliant answer. I wasn't really looking for anything in particular. I just knew that you would you'd be ready to to respond to it. So that's an impromptu thought and an impromptu reaction. And um, that's what I really wanted. Um, and I like that because I, I have I have conversations all the time with with people who um, who do still feel very removed from all of these these words like anti-racist and stuff and they don't really understand why anyone would have to you know be convinced to become um, anti-racist when they're not racist in the first place which puts them into that um, that position you mentioned earlier David where you it's very easy for you to just say I'm not racist I don't have a racist bone in my body um yes I hear that exact phrase very regularly and um to just to begin that conversation that you're talking about to really just sit down and say okay let me understand this a bit better actually um to convince someone that they might not understand their racism to convince someone okay fine like John earlier in his life I mean was not racist but wasn't anti-racist so I think that is a very good uh, place to start that that conversation um, to understand the difference so even though it might be obvious I just ask if you don't mind David do you think you can define the difference between not racist and anti-racist it's simple. It's just intention. You know, intention. it's a real it, intention. You know, it's the idea of, of acknowledging these words are too small, but acknowledging the problem and deciding to be an active part of the solution. That's the difference between those two things, I think. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Okay, so a lot of people have become anti-racist recently, which is why it's been talking, it's been talked about a lot. And that has, of course, made some people a little bit cross. All I hear about nowadays is racism. I'm not racist. Why is everyone going on about it? And as I said earlier, there are people that think if we stop talking about it, it will go away because it wasn't really a thing. I heard someone said this to me very recently. There was no such thing as racism five years ago. But because black people keep going mm. on about it, now there's loads of racism. Uh, so <laughs> that's a strange thing for someone to say. But there are people that think that. Um, so if, if that person was there for you, David, to say, okay, hang on, my man, let's sit down, <laughs> let's have a conversation, mm. where would you start? Uh, you may have stumped me with this one. I think it's really, it's, it's, it's hard, it's a hard conversation to start. Um, You know, I, I don't think I can answer your question uh, in a satisfactory way, but I will tell you that in my own life, going back 30 years, um, I have friendships that I don't want to lose with men who I consider racist. Um, and uh, they're just part of my past, my history. Um, and uh, when we have conversations, uh, they're difficult conversations. Um, and because we are friends, they hear me out and we basically talk about, we basically hold this interview with each other. Um, where we're you know talking back and forth um, about 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 racism, I, I, I it's hard, Rashman, because I think that one of the things that I would be asking those friends to do would be to to call themselves out. It's, it was John's opening comment, you know, about um, what they discover when they have conversations with me about race. Um, but it's 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 really it's a delicate matter because we're also trying to have a successful dinner, for instance, you know, um, so it's, it's kind of, um, it's a hard conversation to have, but I guess I would just start with, um, I think I might just start by asking them how their, how their kids are doing. Um, and, uh, and I would move forward, um, you know, when the time was right into conversations about national politics. Um, and I would basically invite conversation about what's going on there and electoral politics. Um, and just try to keep it as real and make it as real as possible, knowing that that um, if I think I'm going to transform anyone in any given moment, then I'm probably not going to be too successful. But that if I model my own worldview um, while being, you know, tolerant of them as people, that I may make small steps forward as I go. I think the thing that's sad about what I'm saying is that it's never enough, um, and it's never fast enough. 
you know, we are a couple of centuries past due on all this stuff. Um, and, uh, so it's weird to kind of ask people to be patient at this stage of the game when, when we're just so late. Um, but I think it's, it's talking and listening and, and knowing that I'm not going to change anyone in a moment. Um, you know, some of the training that, uh, that John was talking about, it's too bad that we all couldn't take those seminars. Um, but I think that it's, it's my duty to take them and to spread, spread that information when and where I can. In my life, it has to do mostly with teenagers. Um, and so, uh, so that's where my conversations seem to begin. We call them difficult conversations as a term of art. Um, and so we have them with kids. Yeah, that's um, that's an amazing, amazing answer. Thank you, David. Um, I'm just going to pause for a minute. Sorry. Fine. Take your time. Thank you. So, so David, is there anything um, within this topic and what we've been discussing that's particularly close to your heart, or you think that's something that you want brought to to uh, to my audience's attention that you know that they might not know about, or that's just something that you would like to talk about? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's 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 a there's quite a spectrum of things that, that are close to my heart in this topic, and and some of them are. Um, well, just to give you a sense, like, for instance, if I talk to teenagers over the course of, say, a decade, and I'm talking to uh, black children, almost all of them, for instance, will report the experience of going into a department store and being trailed by a security person uh, under suspicion of shoplifting. Um, and then, of course, we've heard all of this about, you know, this kind of this colloquialism about being black while driving. Um, and um, and it just keeps getting more and more serious the more I go down the line. And, you know, in my own lifetime, I've been painfully aware and quite heartbroken um, by the deaths of, of people like Trayvon Martin, of course, which led to the rise of Black Lives Matter, um, George Floyd more recently. Um, and then one that I, I, I still think about quite often to this day is the, the death of, of Sandra Bland in, in 2015. She was a young woman. I think she was about 28, maybe, and she was on her way to work and she was pulled over. And there's still some mystery. Her death is ruled suicide, but she ended up in jail, um, and she ended up dying. And uh, and it's it's just quite a mystery and, and quite the worst worst imagine, imaginable day. And um, it, that kind of those stories empower me as much as they empower you know anyone who is against striving to be anti-racist in their in their lives. Um, and I and I hate to say it, but but. But these are all kind of smaller and larger examples of what we're hearing about, reading about on this very day. Um, that goes by this this idea of, of the great um, replacement theory. Um, it's this idea that that, that these that, that 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 some part of our population is is replaceable, and I think that um, I think that it's I think that we think about it as new, and a lot of people are hearing this term for the first time. But I, I believe that it's quite an old kind of nativist view. I, I, I remember vaguely the late scholar Ronald Takaki at Berkeley talking about even Thomas Jefferson and his pearly white nation, um, you know, thinking a great deal about how that we need to keep this nation white. Certainly, every, you know, Jim Crow seems to be about that. Um, so I don't think that... Uh, the Great Replacement Theory is new, um, and we see it even in other legislation. I'm thinking about like Chinese, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Mexican Exclusion Act, just this idea of kind of controlling who can be here, um, you know. So I think that's that's what I would end with is that, you know, th th there is, I think the work that we have to do um, is all about dispelling this notion of exclusion um, and promoting, the, I think, the more powerful concept of, of authentic inclusion. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you for that. So that's two two very separate points there. So I, I take them one at a time. The first one um, with situations of you know deaths in custody. Um, when when we look at that, and you know there of course there are going to be a lot of people who say, well look, you know, 
a lot of people die in police custody. Um, and yes, some of them are black. Uh, some of them are also not black. So why are these names that you've mentioned, Trevor Martin, uh, George Floyd, Sandra Bland, why are these ones, you know, stuck in your throat? Why are they? I mean, yes, okay, we had a lot of social media frenzy around them, but we also have some social media frenzy about other deaths, I think. Although so there are some people that might say no, when white people die in police custody, it's never all over social media. So why is this focus on black people? What do you think? I think I focus on them because because what I want to work against is racism, um, and, and I think that so I guess my point is that that these people were were um, what's my word they were kind of separated out in a way and they were in a sense targeted whether or not uh, we knew what the end result was going to be um, and I think it's just a, just a just an unspeakable. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just an unspeakable uh, kind of taking away of, of human rights. Hmm. Um, I don't know that I can make a strong comparison to, certainly there would be some injustice in anyone dying in a similar way, um, in, for instance, in a, in a jail cell. But I will say this, there's, uh, there's a strong argument to say that, that the people that I've mentioned wouldn't have been in the situations they were in if they were white. Okay. All right, yeah. So, 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 John. I mean, have you got anything um, that you can respond to, especially with regards to to driving while black or deaths in police custody? I mean, <clears throat> my anecdotes of driving while black could be an, could be a book unto itself. But I will say that in order to kind of link the the two ideas of of, of you know death while in custody and great replacement theory, those two I those two phenomenon are related because the the uh, the uh, let's be clear about something the southern, the southern poverty law center released a report in 2008 or 9 and they release this report every year almost half almost half of all law enforcement agencies federal and state and local are infiltrated by nazis or white supremacist groups half that means that your chances when driving down the road of being stopped by essentially a white supremacist are about 50%. Okay, <clears throat> now, and this is becoming becoming more evidenced by the fact that there have been more reports recently about how Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department is got a giant Nazi component to it, right? And that they basically hunt down blacks and Latinos as part of their initiation. And they wear Nazi tats and other, other crazy, that's openly reported. Now, if you, if you are concerned about a great replacement by demographically by blacks and Latinos and other minorities, then the, your method of attrition is going to be through systemic means. You're gonna use over-policing, right? So when people say things like, um, oh, well, that's just statistically, it's, it's, it's statistically normal for, well, first of all, the idea that any death is taking place statistically and it's acceptable to you is an immoral argument. Okay, you're inherently coming from a position of immorality to argue in favor of the immorality of a system that's structurally immoral, right? It's just rife with immorality, right? So like, why even start with that? But if you know that demographically your, your fear, and by the way, African-Americans are probably the least or one of the least likely to at least, well, not the least, but the second, we are, the, the chances of African-Americans overtaking whites demographically is almost zero. We represent 15% of the population. Whites represent over 50, okay? So the idea that we are targeted in and of itself is not, uh, is not logical. Having said that, if you are gonna target a, you know, different populations, then you're gonna use the tools that you have at your disposal. Attrition is a horrible and really inefficient way to go about it, but it's the method that you can use that obscures your true intent. You use police, okay? so. Now, I also kind of want to address this idea of great replacement theory because it's not the idea that, and I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the genesis of the fear. Whites came to the Americas and they murdered at estimate 59 million Native Americans, either actively or through other means, disease, blankets, and such. I mean, I, I, I can't, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be dismissive about the methods. I just don't know them all, but I can tell you that an estimated 20,000 tribes were eradicated. 
okay, and possibly more. Now, everywhere that you go in almost every state, there's a highway that's named after, right, named after some tribe that no longer exists. Powhatan, Potomac, Piscataway, you know, that's all that's left of these people. They're names that we put on schools and highways. There are schools, community centers, stores, neighborhoods, all standing on places where there were once there was once a Native American indigenous civilization. Now, if you, if if the, the seat of your power was built on the de the death and the blood of other people, i.e., you replaced them, right? Then it stands the reason that you are then going to live in some level of fear that you similarly will be replaced. It doesn't justify the fear. I just I'm, I just see I'm looking at the the re I can see the wheels turning in people's minds. Hey, you know what? We're, we're living on ill-gotten land and we live a pretty good life here. So what's to say that someone's not gonna come and take, take the land away from us? So, and, and that's also a fear, this fear that in losing control of the country, the people who have benefited for so long from, from being in control are now going to be at the mercy of the people who they subjugated in order to gain control. And nobody likes that idea. They're like, oh gosh, what happens? What's gonna happen if African-Americans take over? They're really gonna. They're really gonna start killing us and murdering us and everything else. So, but the Great Replacement Theory also wasn't exclusively targeted just towards African Americans initially. Initially, the fear came from the fact that 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 Jews had been quote unquote mainstreamed. Right over the course of this country, it, initially, if you weren't Dutch in this country, you weren't American. And then it became if you weren't Dutch and German, you weren't American. And then it became if you weren't Dutch and and, 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 and what they did was they gained this idea of whiteness, you know, to the point where it's a very wide umbrella, including Italians, which until the 60s were not considered American. So that's, that's all wrapped up in this replacement theory. The fact that, and it, and it, and it, and it kind of culminated, came to a head in 1965 with the Immigration Reform Act, where once again, you know, the government and, and Johnson decided to gain the demographics. They needed a disposable workforce and they started bringing people over, right? They relaxed restrictions and not just from Europe, from Asia. And they did that also as a, in part to disenfranchise African-Americans. And so now what they're, what's happened is they're faced with a very diverse population that in the aggregate will eventually outnumber them. And from an electoral perspective, that means losing control of the country. So, um, so I would say, that's what I have to say about written place in theory. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a ridiculous notion, but the way that it relates to mass death, mass incarceration, is they use over policing as a means of, for lack of a better word, culling black and, and Latino neighborhoods. And by the way, one more small point, and this is evidence: New York, all right, Democratic Mayor Eric Adams. And by the way, I'm a, I'm I'm a lefty. He you know he his he has defunded public services. He has increased funding to to the police. And he has spent most of his time displacing homeless people. Okay, that is another form of replacement. And despite the fact that Eric Adams is black, he is playing to a specific playbook, which police forces are often used to displace communities of color and aid in the gentrification of those neighborhoods. Okay, all right. I hope that wasn't too, I hope that I kind of knitted it all together appropriately, sorry. If I, I think so. You know, what I would also only add to this for your listeners, Reshma, is that what John was just talking about, it's closer to critical race theory and that the main tenet of that is that, that the racism that we deal with is institutional and systematic. And so if it involves the police or the naming of a school, you know, that's, uh, that's what that is about, largely. Yeah, um, thank you for, for that, for, for both of you. Everything you said, John, has really helped me, so it will definitely help my listeners. And, and David, that, that last edition was vital. So thank you for saying that. Um, because so, um, to be honest, I didn't really understand institutional racism either. So when you have, okay, institutionalized systems are not things that I fully understood for a very long time. I wrote a blog um, last year, really sort of wading through the issues and the fact that I, as a black woman, I, as a Muslim woman, didn't know these things. So why would I expect anyone else to? And um, when things would happen that would make me confused, I wouldn't quite know how to deal with it. And that is because I am 
very much a, and I will say a victim, I am, a, I am an outright victim of the nonsense education of the British system. I mean, when I think about the, the education I was given um, at, at the school that I went to, bless them, uh, I, I, it's, it's almost hilarious, like um, just the things that, that I was forced to, under, to study and the viewpoint I was forced to take when I look back. And um, so I do think that that has, has truly impacted the way I process information. So, and, and sadly, John, I'm sorry, I'm ashamed to say, the internet has been my teacher. <laughs> so hmm. <laughs> over, the, over the last decade, I think that's really where I've got a lot of my understanding from. And, um, and prior to that, if there was any, any understanding of, of global events and how, you know, especially like things, cause I'm British, I don't really understand what you've gone through as an African-American or what you've gone through. Do you know what I mean? As, as a, as a white American, David, I don't, I don't actually know your roots even. So do you know what I mean? So it, this is not something that's always been at the forefront of my, of my attention. And you noticed earlier, and I thank you for the, for the correction, John, that I said to David, these two things are not related. <laughs> You know, I think with attrition and, and replacement theory have got nothing to do with each other. And here I am trying to have a conversation about racism. So this is why it's important, um, not only for me to have these conversations, but, you know, for audiences, for listeners to see that I don't get it also. And I need to understand it and they need to understand it. And we all need to sit down and talk and understand it. So thank you both so much. Can I, can I inject something for your for your African-American, African, your black UK viewers and, and viewers of color in the UK. One of the things that is, is I won't say unique, but one of the things that is, that is unusual about the descendants, African, African American descendants of slaves is that when we were brought here from the countries, from the car countries of origin, we were systematically stripped of our connection to that, to those countries. It, the first thing that 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 slaveholders did when when we were captured and sold was they changed our names, right? And then they forbade us from speaking the languages that we were accustomed to speaking. And th that's because you were saying you know you had gone your whole life and there were some things that you didn't understand about the African American experience. Mm -hmm. Now we have, in various ways and many beautiful ways, figured out ways to grow and cultivate our own culture in and amongst ourselves. But I think. I, I think there are a lot of people who still feel even generationally that part of themselves missing where they don't speak, you know, um, you know, Mende and they don't speak, you know, any of these languages. Like I can't even think of the languages. We don't speak them. We don't have any connection to the culture, you know, and those are things I think some of us kind of long for to some degree, um, not in, not uh, as a substitute for what we know, but in addition to. And I think that that's one of those things when people coming from, the UK or other countries who don't understand the African-American experience, they need to understand how that informs our interactions with ourselves, each other, one another, our state, the government, you know, it informs everything. This absence, this thing that has been taken from us. Um, a lot of the people that I know from the continent of Africa, they're really educated, you know, and that's because there's this 100,000 long year tradition of educational, you know, educational tradition. Whereas we were actively dis, you know, discouraged from that until very recently. I mean, not by our parents, but by, the, by a system. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that if, if we are going to come together ultimately and, and have discussions with our brethren and our cousins across the, the pond, that's something that we need to, we, that's a, 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 point, a point that we need to start from. So can I add one little thing to that? Most definitely. Yeah, it's just a small anecdote um, that kind of what, what John's talking about in practice. Years ago, I would uh, teach something called the American Journeys Project to teenagers. And what, their, what the idea was, was that they would, it's very common in schools, they would actually trace and report on their own heritage and their own, their own ancestry. Um, and what's fascinating about that is that black kids and families would be upset with me because, it, because the presentation of that project did not take into consideration exactly what John just described to us. So if you can imagine, for instance, a certain, you know, one kid going back to his, you know, going back, you know, eight generations, um, you know, uh, to, you know, to, um, you know, to 
Yeah, thank you. Um, and but another child being kind of blocked by, uh, you know, the kidnapping and the erasure, um, you can see how that's a problem, you know. And um, one of the things that we did in response to that is that we started doing something else in our own city of in our own city of San Francisco, where we started uh, thinking about migration and immigration, and basically doing kind of neighborhood mapping and talking to people who lived in the city about where they came from. Um, as opposed to it being, as opposed to us putting kids on the spot necessarily about the deep past, um, it's, it's a it's a tricky thing. Um, but I do think that that to go back to your overarching question, I think that our sensitivity sensitivity to all of this is a vital part of um, of progress. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's that's a very beautiful way to end. I think if if you all if you both agree. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good too. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you both for being here. Amazing journey. Um, just beautiful time spent. I've learned so much. God bless you. Peace and love. Thank you. Talk to you soon. You have been listening to The Violet Rays with your host.